Hello, and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And I have a broken toe. Well, maybe. I think you might have a broken toe. It happened moments ago, and it hurts real bad. So, hopefully, we can get through this without a problem. It's hard to tell when you have a broken toe, right? Yeah, and it was... pointless, too. Yeah, it was... It's my the babiest toe on my left leg, uh-huh. and I kicked the door frame trying to clear a doorway. Right. I did not clear the doorway. Uh, it There was a sound and a pain, and I can't stop shivering. A kind of a, a snap, crackle, pop? Mm, I didn't want to get graphic. Okay. <laughs> so We're doing Stephen yeah, King. We can get graphic. It, it wasn't great. It so now it's throbbing, and it hurts, and... Uh, there's nothing to be done. Right. If I broke my baby toe, the only thing that the doctor would do is tape it to the next toe, if that. So we're not going to do that. I can take care of myself. I'm a pioneer lady. Uh, how was your week? Other uh, than other than the broken toe of your best friend. Um. Um. Well, God, you know it's hard to come back from that. Mm, sorry. Now that I'm looking at yourself. Think about the week. Prior to that, the week prior to that was actually fun. It was it was kind of tiring. There was a lot to do this week, and we went through a lot of stuff. And we saw a movie I didn't expect to like, but we'll talk about it later. Oh, will um, we? Okay. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was actually a pretty enjoyable week. Just stuff full of things, and so I, I can't even remember it all. It's sort of a blur. Sort of a blur. How was your week? Mm, it was fine, except I broke my toe. Okay. <laughs> No, it was Aside fine. from breaking your toe, how was the rest of your week? Pretty good. Uh, we are making progress with our other show, and uh-huh. so I spent a lot of time uh, making transcripts and a website. Okay. So that's fun. A website. And... I had to write a bio. We watched this movie again. Uh, yes. So we're breaking format because we've seen it, mm-hmm. but we're not breaking format because we're watching all of Stephen King on screen. So... Right. And, you know, this film constantly surprises me every time I see it. Yeah. I I got new things out of the film that I hadn't before. How many times have you seen it? Oh, we should say, we're watching 1980's The Shining. Right, 1980's The Shining, not yes. The Shining that came afterward. The revision of The Shining. So how many times have you seen it? I think I've probably seen it four times, maybe, yeah, about four. This will be about my fourth time, I think. We're hopeful that the car alarm outside stops, so right. hopefully you won't be uh, bothered by it, dear listener. So we watched Stanley Kubrick's directed uh, The Shining. Uh-huh. It uh, came out on July, nope, June. Mm-hmm. It came out on May 23rd, 1980. Wow. I'm sorry. The IMDb date and the Wikipedia date are different. So okay. I'm, I'm going with the Wikipedia date. Uh, with a runtime of 146 minutes. Directed, produced, and screenplay by Stanley Kubrick, although mm-hmm. the screenplay was also by Diane Johnson. I have some information about her later. Okay. I'm going to give a brief overview. Overview. Okay. Overview. And this is from the Wikipedia page. This is specific to the film, not to the book. We'll get into it. The Shining is about Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic who accepts a position as an off-season caretaker of the isolated, historic Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. Wintering over with Jack are his wife, Wendy Torrance, played by Shelley Duvall, and young son, Danny Torrance, 
played by Danny Lloyd. Danny possesses the shining psychic abilities that allow him to see the horrific the hotel's horrific past. The hotel's cook, Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers, also has this and is able to telepathically communicate with Danny. The hotel had a previous winter caretaker who went crazy and killed his family and himself. After a winter storm leaves the Torrance's snowbound, Jack's sanity deteriorates due to the influence of the supernatural forces that inhabit the hotel, placing his wife and son and Dick Halloran in danger. <laughs> it doesn't say that last piece, but it's true. This movie is very famous. Right. Hailed as a horror classic. It is. Stars Jack Nicholson. You may have seen him breaking an a-, a door down with an axe and yelling, right. here's Johnny. It actually almost stars Jack Nicholson twice. He's yeah. so overwhelmed as the course of the film. So, let's start. All right, here we go. Let's start with the start. Okay, so I've seen this movie twice. Mm-hmm. And the, I had not seen it for a very long time because uh, Stephen King hates this movie. Uh, I don't think Stephen King hates this movie. I think that Stephen King hates that this movie is an adaptation of one of his books. Uh And I was a Stephen King fan, so I was standing for Stephen King. But then I was like, at some point, i got to watch this movie so that I can know what I dislike. I really liked it the first time we watched it. Uh And this time when we watched it, I found the visual stunning, Uh the uh, soundscape that is created is Uh also stunning. The characters and the story are highly problematic to me. <laughs> so let's start with the fact that the book is called The Shining. Who has The Shining? Danny. Who's the, the main character of the books? Danny. Could Stanley Kubrick care any less about this child? No. <laughs> this, bu- this movie... Also, yeah. So fundamentally... From the beginning, the shiny. This movie should be called Alcoholic Asshole. Right. The film. the The movie should you be called. You know why that title would not be successful? Uh, yes. This movie could be called uh, All Work and No Play. That Which would probably a be theme in the film. A better title for the movie. The movie, The Shining, matters so little in the actual film mm-hmm. as to be laughable. The reason that it's the title is only because it's the adaptation of the book. I think I kind of agree with you. In the, in no, the I mean, I'm not saying about the difference in the book because mm-hmm. I've never read the book. Right. But I mean, in terms of the film, on its own terms, mm-hmm. um, Danny is important, but he's overwhelmed by Jack Nicholson's mm-hmm. performance, and we mm-hmm. really are not following. I think the character to me who comes across the least interesting is Mom. Yeah, which, yes. And and that's a problem as well mm-hmm. because, well, for many reasons. Um, let's start with Jack Nicholson. Okay. Jack Nicholson at the making of this film was in his early 40s. Right. Jack Torrance, the character, is 29 years old. Mm-hmm. Not even on the best day right. is Jack Nicholson in this film or a Jack 29 year old. What's there? Oh, yeah, no, it's not. It's a very rough 70s, untended to hairline, yes. And in the book, he is much more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And he is wrestling with the demons of alcoholism and the, the, the hotel. The literal demons of the hotel. And at the end, he 
wounds Dick Halloran, mm-hmm. but then is able to hold himself together enough to allow his family to escape while he stays behind. And in the book, the uh, destruction is by a furnace. The furnace explodes. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, um, and I think Stephen King sums it up, the movie is cold and the book is hot yeah. thematically. Um, in this, from the opening scene, Jack is unlikable and abusive. Now, mm-hmm. he's a little unlikable in the book. Like, he, it's, in, it's from his point of view, right? So we're hearing his thoughts or reading his thoughts. And during the job interview, he, um, he refers to the man that's giving him the interview as an officious prick like right. 16 times. <laughs> So, like, right off the bat, we're like, okay, so this guy is great. Um, But in this, he's very, he's putting on a lot of airs at the beginning because he's desperate for this job. He's miserable to his wife. Basically, he treats her like she is the bane of his existence. And without her, his life would be a thousand times better. Which... I mean, fine, but I, I have no in with this character. Mm-hmm. You're an asshole to everybody, and you just get worse. Like <laughs> the thing, and he's got a lot of. I mean, I believe he utters the phrase "white man's burden." Yes, he does. Apropos of nothing to a, the bartender, right? Who is a demon or something, because <laughs> he's not there. Uh, and I and the N word is uttered in this right. film a couple of times. I had a problem watching the movie because I was like, this guy's a fucking dick. Right. And I don't sympathize with him. And you know, because of the famous scenes, that it's only going to get worse from the beginning, uh, which is not the movie's fault. That's just the way culture works. No, but again, I have no basis of comparison for the book. So the film is something completely different. That's fair. Uh, But just... In terms of watching the movie, right. I have trouble with the this character. The character like, in the oh. film is, it seems like Kubrick went in the direction, and what you have are two geniuses, basically, between the writer and the director. These are two. There's no disputing the fact that these two people are brilliant. Now, what Kubrick was seeing was a completely different story. He was seeing the story of an alcoholic man mm-hmm. who is losing his bearings, and the sinister feelings in this hotel were driving him even further and further crazy. Mm-hmm. And he very carefully sets it up so that there's almost a pragmatic explanation for everything that happens. Yeah, and um, I will say, um, and this is pulling some information mm-hmm. from a, I think it's from her book, uh-huh. um, but it, I found it uh, on a longer as a longer piece uh, on the website Stra- Scraps from the Loft. Um, by Diane Johnson. Uh, this was released just after Kubrick's death, and she it's an essay, basically, about the writing of this book. And of the screenplay, you mean? Of the, yes, no, of the okay. screenplay. So Kubrick was looking to direct a horror film. He had directed uh-huh. a sci-fi film. He had directed a war film. Now he wanted to direct uh-huh. a horror uh-huh. film. Um, and he pegged her to write it because he liked one of her novels mm-hmm. um, and then picked... The Shining to write, um, because he thought it would be it would free her up to not be adapting her own thing, mm-hmm. um, and also he gives a little dig. Uh, he said, 
He sweetly soothed any disappointment I might have felt that he didn't choose my novel for his film by saying it was easier to make a film of a lesser literary work, just <laughs> as it was easier to make a film of an author's minor work, for example, Thackeray's Barry Lyndon instead of Vanity Fair. He believed in adapting already existing books rather than working from the original scripts. He has no respect for scriptwriters, for screenwriters. No. Uh, he, he started as a photographer, so the image is a thing to him. Novelists, he thought, were, better, were apt to be better writers than screenwriters are. An idea that many would debate. For whatever reasons, in his personal experience, he didn't have much respect for screenwriters. Which is funny, because you know who has the screenwriting credit on this? He does. <laughs> screenwriting is really different, though. and It, it is. It requires you to write in the present tense. So it's it. Um, I can understand the sort of feeling when you're reading it that it doesn't have the sort of introspection. And I would say that, that it is film can have harder I mean, that, uh, novels have because much of the context mm-hmm. and depth of a novel comes from non-dialogue, right. and a script is dialogue. Well, very it, little of what is in a script that isn't dialogue is going to be translated one for one onto the s- screen. There are some screenwriters like uh, Paul Schrader, for instance, who we've seen his work when he wrote Taxi Driver. You look at his script, and we did for one of my classes, and it reads like a novel. He was allowed to write in these very long passages because he knew the director he was working for. Okay, And yeah. so he was able to communicate for them. And I'm sure that... A script sold on spec, for instance, is not going to have any no. of that. No. And, and, but a script uh-huh. written by somebody like Kubrick may have right. a lot of that. A lot of his personal Exposition notes. and things that and, yeah. you wouldn't typically have in a screenplay. Right. But as far as going back to what I felt was going on with the film, I think that um, he saw it more as a story of an alcoholic ruining his family. Yes, and he um, he also dove deep into uh, Freud. Right. And I have to say, this is something that now, in the light of, and I don't want to say the light of the Me Too movement because that sounds very kind of silly, but... It's fine. In the light of the sort of modern change in our attitudes, his portrayal, both Jack Nicholson's portrayal of this alcoholic abuser mm-hmm. and the direction really feels very realistic. I mean, the pity is that we don't really get much from Wendy Torrance. Yes, and that is another big problem that King has mm-hmm. and that I have, I think. So in the novel, she is an extraordinarily good-looking blonde woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is brought to light in the miniseries that King makes later. Uh, Starring Rebecca De Mornay, Rebecca De Mornay. <laughs> who is nothing if not a beautiful right. blonde. She sees, she doesn't see what's coming, mm-hmm. but she's more of a foil. Right. And in the in the original script, Shelley had significantly more dialogue, uh-huh. but a lot of it was cut by Kubrick, who I would argue was blatantly abusive to Shelley Duvall on the set of this film. Now, this is what people who worked on the film have said, yes. that he was just very abusive. And I don't know that it was that he didn't like her performance or that... He had a, he had problems with her performance uh-huh. and told everyone so. Right. So whether he really did or wanted her to think that mm-hmm. is immaterial. Well, directors also are notorious for manipulating actors for the sake of performance. Right. If she walked around in living terror of her director, that was going to ensure that she sort of... I mean, she was being abused. Well, and yes, the the scene on the steps where she uh-huh. is um, sort of fighting him off with the baseball bat right. was 127 takes. 
Yeah. That's abuse. Right. There is no way he used the 127th take. My understanding is that the assault on Scatman Crothers was over 70. And this is an elderly man who's being hit with a, a hard rubber axe repeatedly. Repeatedly. In the, in the chest with it, whether he has a pad for it. But still, he walked away covered in bruises. The, um, the, the axe through the uh, door scene yeah. was three days and went through 60 doors and uh, was largely improvised. So Shelley Duvall didn't know what the fuck was coming. Right. Well, this is the same performance that, um, for instance, Hitchcock very famously tortured Tippi Hedren yes, on the set of The Birds. absolutely. To the point where she had a nervous breakdown during a take. Mm-hmm. And he kept rolling because it was capturing... She was an experienced actress at this point. She was a model, mostly. Right. So he felt like the way to ensure that she would be in a state of terror was to actually terrorize her. Right. But the maddening... I think one of the most maddening things about the Duval mm-hmm. issue is... Well, first of all, she's not particularly right for the role mm-hmm. as written, so they adjusted it to her. Right. Now, she's in another movie the same year that comes out six months later, uh-huh. and that is as Olive Oil and Popeye, uh-huh. and never has a person, un- until Matthew Lillard played Shaggy, never uh-huh. has a person been more perfectly cast. Perfectly cast. Yes. She's unbelievably perfect to play Olive Oil. Right. To play Winifred Torrance... Not so much. Okay. And she was handpicked and pushed by Kubrick, who then had all these issues. Now, she, King had issues with her, too. Mm-hmm. And he, very famous, I'm referring to the Fangoria article, I think mm-hmm. it was Fangoria 3, that I remember reading before I even saw the film. Yes, it came out, uh, right. that Fangoria article is, I think, from the 1979 issue. Right. Yes, so and it was he, before the movie came out. He mentions that she... Uh, he was kind of disdainful. He said she looked nervous and overbred. He's not wrong. Which is an unkind thing to it's say. It's unkind. But it is, from the point of view of a, for, as myself as a writer, Yeah. if somebody just wanted, I'm oh my God, casting a film version but of it, if somebody gets it so wrong, it's, it's, it would be frustrating. Yeah. Because he has a type that you see through mm-hmm. his books. There's a, the same way that we have an Alfred Hitchcock blonde, we have a Stephen King kind of redhead most of the time, um, there's a certain woman that appeals to him the same way that you run into... He likes blondes, too. I the think. same woman that you see in a lot of Ian Fleming's novels, you'll see that woman, and it's a personal taste, so I think that was something... Um, like, it, it, it rankled him to see that this was not what he had in mind at all. But he also, later, much mm-hmm. later, this was in 97, when he right. was ta- touting his... Um, adaptation. Adaptation. Uh, he refers to Duvall's performance as one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film. She's basically just there to scream and be stupid, and that's not the woman that I wrote about. Right. So, and I think that's fair. I think in the book she's mm-hmm. way more fleshed out. Now, granted, every character is more fleshed out right. in the book because it's a book. It right. goes on and on. But right. she's so many of her lines were cut, and she's crying through 50% yes. of her screen time. Mm-hmm. Which And they took 500 days to shoot this movie. Jesus. So for 12 hours a day, and they shot it chronologically, right. which I don't know why they would do that. That helps the actors sometimes. I'm not sure that Maybe. would help necessarily in this case. I can understand it if it was like all children. Like I think Harry Potter, it makes sense Well, you were working that. significantly with the child. Though. But that's the next. He's, the, he's my next target. No. Right. Um, the, the other thing that I actually wanted to say um, about Jack again was uh-huh. in the book, 
it is indicated that Jack may have a touch of the shining, which is mm-hmm. why he can see the things that he right. can see. Dick talks about how interacting with him is not like interacting with somebody who definitely has the shining, but it's also not like interacting with somebody who doesn't. Right. It's sort of muddled, and I think part of that could be, you know. Is it, his abilities are unfocused? It could be unfocused, mm-hmm. could be worn away from abuse, of, you know, alcohol abuse. Um who knows? It's not further explored, but it does make sense for his character to have some sensitivity mm-hmm. since he is so targeted and um, then succumbs to the right. supernatural powers of this hotel. Um, meanwhile, Danny just sees... Oh, no. He doesn't just see things. He sees the girls and he sees, you know, He's elevators of blood. But he is yeah. physically assaulted by the right. woman in the bathtub. Um, and bruised, so uh, he is wounded. Now let's talk about Danny. So Danny, we have to talk about Danny. Yes, and run. <laughs> this child was hired for his ability to focus for long periods of time, mm-hmm. not for his ability to say lines. Mm-hmm. He also was this. I will give. Stanley Cooper credit for, mm-hmm. largely sheltered from what was actually happening in the film. He right. didn't know it was a horror movie for several years after because he's only six. The child, that's the actor, is only six. So... It was those Asperger qualities that Cooper wanted. <laughs> but it was, it was... I think it was a, can you just stare in a direction for a long uh-huh. period of time and remain quiet? Whether or not you're on screen or not, well, probably. Okay. And again, speaking to Kubrick, this is a man who also is a perfectionist who will retake. And that's another element that we're not thinking of. Yes, he will do take after take after take. That's fine. Um, I don't like it quite so much because I feel like a director like John Ford, for instance, did two takes and he was done. I, I, I honestly believe mm-hmm. that there's somewhere in between that that's right. right. Two might not be enough. Mm-hmm. It might be. Well, see, but uh, it might not be, especially if it's a particularly emotional scene. The characters Ford's may not idea was be there. Get the actors. For instance, he worked with the same actors all the time. So right. The actors are going to hit their notes. They know what they want from. He knows what he wants from them. And if he kept doing takes, he was going to destroy, destroy whatever spontaneity they had. They had right. That was his idea. Right. Kubrick's idea was just the opposite. He's going to keep going until he gets one take. His, his he films wanted are almost entirely do... made in the editing suite. Right. Yes. And so he, uh, and when you see Danny's performance, yes, it isn't really a performance. It's a lot of sometimes static shots of him looking horrified. Yeah, while things are happening around him. Around him, yeah. His performance mm-hmm. takes away from me for a little bit, mm-hmm. a, a little bit in this. Now, granted, yes, he's a six-year-old child, right? But the use of his performance maybe takes away a little bit from when me. When you see the remake, right, that we're going to see eventually. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the child actor they chose, but that child actor was Mr. Personality. And so there's such a clear contrast between... There's a between huge difference between A kid who's just really outgoing. Yeah, I looked it up earlier. Um, mean. Yeah, there's a clear difference. And it was a weird... I really felt like the performance was entirely the editing. It was. Because even in the scenes where, for instance, he's sitting on the bed talking to his dad or he's talking to his mom, the scenes are not focused on the little boy as much as they are focused on... The parents talking to them consistently. And the, the focus only is on scenes the parents. where you really spend a lot of time with Danny is when he's riding his tricycle or big wheel or whatever it is. Cortland Mead is okay. the kid's name. 
That's a mouthful. And he was in The Little Rascals that they remade in 94. Right. And Yeah, he was in a bunch of stuff. Now, this child, Danny, he did two movies and bounced. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, no thanks, None that's fine. Which is fine. I mean, uh, he was a child. A lot of child actors go that way. Um, and I guess they filmed this film. So the... It's, it's complicated. It's a little bit weird. The Overlook Hotel is based on a hotel that is in Colorado. Uh-huh. That is not the film, the, the movie, the no, one, the, what we see in the, in the movie. The outside is a, a hotel in Oregon, mm-hmm. Clackamas County. And the inside is sound stages in An enormous sound stage. I've seen pictures um, of the actual sets they use, which are amazing. Not only that, but the... And this is something that Stephen King recounts in his article for Fangoria, mm-hmm. he visited the set near the end of production. And he was allowed to walk around and take pictures and do things. Um, well, not not take pictures, rather. People were taking photographs, but he was they, There was a documentary that. made right. in conjunction with the uh, film. Uh-huh. It was filmed by Kubrick's daughter, who I think was 19 at the time, okay. and was released not terribly long ago called Room 237. It's a massive group of sets. Yes. And the, I mean, there was, uh, what he mentioned was walking around with industrial, in the uh, snowscapes, which were made with industrial salt. Mm. So it crunched, it felt. Yeah, I didn't even think about the outside things right. because the insides were so large. Right. And, and you get a feeling of how big this place is uh-huh. as you're seeing them just walk. And there's just some walk. very old school special effects technology that's, unnoticeable in this movie, which is using sets with forced perspective mm. to make them look even larger than they really are. So right. he said it was a mammoth set, and then using some very, almost the kind of tricks that date back to silent movies, the set looked twice as big as it already was, and it looked enormous. So it was, um, yeah, the, technically it was really brilliant. I, again, Kubrick's gift with actors, I don't know. <laughs> he seems to be kind of... Not so great with the people. He's not a people person. He's not a people person, which is a shame since he's decided that he's going to be in charge of people. Scatman Crothers, in another interview I read, talked about, well, for one thing, being hit repeatedly in the chest with a rubber hammer or a rubber axe. Yeah. But he said that his thing was, he just sort of took it as, of course he was dictatorial, but he'd worked with a lot of dictatorial people in his lifetime in the entertainment industry. This is like, I hit my kids because my parents hit me and it's fine. And I turned out fine. But his whole thing was, again... I, I'm working with Stanley Kubrick, so let me see what he's doing, even if it if I'm ending the day kind of like wanting to just take a long nap. Yeah, well, and that's the thing too. Well, there's a little bit in the in the interviews you see with Shelley Duvall. Uh-huh. She's like, "Oh no, I cried for like 12 hours a day for like over a year, but you know, when I got back to my room after the day, I uh-huh. really felt at peace. It was really cathartic." And I'm like, "Okay." You sound like you have Stockholm Syndrome. I know, she probably did. Well, um, and it turns out, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen, she was on Dr. Phil in 2016. I didn't see I wouldn't watch it. Um, it's pretty clear that she is in pretty significant declining mental health. Oh, that's a pity. Um, and there were some conspiracy theory things, and like, it was, it was just, it was a shame. Uh, and I don't think that the filming of this helped. Probably not. Um, she does look very anxious. And I do think that he terrified her. And mm-hmm. that's how he, he was doing this deliberately. Yeah. 
which is such a shame because, like I said, several people petitioned to get somebody else for the role because they didn't think she was the right mm-hmm. fit. He lobbied for her. He, she was her, his first choice. And I don't know if it's because this is what he wanted to do on the film set or if he was so mad at his, himself because he wasn't getting what he wanted uh-huh. and he made the wrong decision that he was taking it out on her. I, it's very strange to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not great. Um, so those are my sort of issues character wise. But mm-hmm. the, I mean, the biggest, no, I think it is twin pillars of um, Jack is unlikable from the get go. Mm-hmm. And then Wendy is underdrawn yeah. and maybe overplayed. Not not because of Shelley Duvall, anything Shelley Duvall's done, but th- because that's... I felt it when she's running around at the end of the film. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a point of contention whether there are actual ghosts in the hotel or whether this is in his head, right. which is something that Kubrick says very clearly settled Now, on. I would argue there are ghosts in the hotel because Danny sees them. Right. Danny is not an alcoholic. Right, but this is the point I'm making. <laughs> I know. It's Kubrick didn't want to make a ghost story. Kubrick doesn't believe necessarily in ghosts. Um, hey, the, guys, when you're going to make a movie about uh-huh. a haunted hotel, maybe you should open your mind to the idea of a ghost and not scoff at it so hard or pick a different material There's to a moment in the film where he allows this sort of little... Uh, leaves a door open for doubt. And this is... You pointed out that Wendy forgets how to lock the freezer when she locks her husband in. When she first tries to open the door to lock him in, oh she God. can't get this sort of uh, spindle that has to be pulled out of the door yeah. so that it opens. Yes. Later on in the film, Jack is talking to a ghost, right? Yes. Talking to a ghost through the door. Jack, I'm calling him Jack. That's his name. You know, Jack Nicholson. But it's also Jack Torrance. Right. But I'm just, He's yeah, all so. Jack. And the kid is all Danny. It's only Shelly that's got extra names. (laughs) So he's speaking to him, and then the door opens Opens. from the outside, Mm -hmm. which what Kubrick, I think, was leaving open was the idea maybe she didn't lock the door because she couldn't remember to put the spindle inside the hole. And so it left it open for another interpretation. By the end of it, she's running around the hotel seeing the ghost herself. She sees the elevator of blood. He's, like mm, I said, Danny has seen the little girls, the girl in the... uh, or the woman in the bathtub, yeah. the blood. I think those are the three things. He's He's got this imaginary friend who's like, sort of, I guess, like a spirit guide, uh-huh. um, who red rums all over the place. Uh-huh. It's murder backwards. Um, oh, spoiler alert, y'all, if you didn't know that. <laughs> it's been 40 years almost, so <laughs> you can do a but, spoiler. Um, so... It feels to me like the movie is beautiful uh-huh. and like I said, sounds really good, but the characters are leave a lot for me to desire. And the plotting leaves a lot to desire because there's no arc to me mm-hmm. for Jack Torrance. Not really. Um, in the book, and they had this scene in the movie, but it was cut and um, Diana Johnson... Uh, mm-hmm. sort of laments that a little bit. There's You see a scrapbook at one point next to his um, typewriter. 
in the book, a large part of his transition is he finds the scrapbook down with the furnace. Now, the furnace isn't really a character in this, but it's mm-hmm. big in the book because it's right. fundamentally what takes him out at the end, right? Um, the scrapbook of all of these bad things that had happened previously uh, in the hotel. And when he finds that, it sort of unlocks the hotel to him. It also unlocks his writer's block. In the movie, there's no real transition to mm. when he's just throwing a ball against the wall for hours at a time right. and when he's typing feverishly. Now we know when he's typing feverishly, he's not He's not writing. producing any work, right. But he thinks that he is, I think. I think mm-hmm. he's in a fugue well, that's why, state, again, right? It, it leaves that sort of thing because you could make the argument that Wendy is suffering from Capgras syndrome or delusion where she's bought into the um, delusions that her husband has. Again, that doesn't explain Danny or the fact that Danny knows ahead of time what's going to happen what's or to happen, yeah. Dick. Yes. So I think the problem is that you have Kubrick not willing to go far enough and sort of hedging his bets all the time right? and not being really able to do that honestly with the material. Right. It's still going to be a story about a person with a psychic connection, whether or not he wants to photograph it that way or whether or not he wants right. to create... And a, you called it... The Shining, right. and then we have a nice magical Negro to tell us what The Shining is. <laughs> so you've introduced, mm-hmm. in no uncertain terms, because he ha- he's speaking telepathically mm-hmm. to Danny at the beginning. Right. He is talking to Wendy and mind-thinking about ice cream to Danny. Right. And Danny understands it, we think. Which is, we, it's me, hard to tell with Danny's I no understand face. that Dick <sighs> is a, a like sympathetic character, that scene always creeped me out. Every time I see it, the fact that he's talking to Wendy and he turns and looks at Danny. It is creepy. And you hear, would you like to get some ice cream? Yeah. And you don't know that this a man has the ability to do that. It just comes across as really like, what just happened? Yeah. And there's... Especially because we haven't seen any right. indication of any psychic ability from Danny right. prior to this. Well, you get the idea that it's he has the the seizure before this, but we don't know yeah, if that's, that's a seizure true. or if it's you know this is the first validation that right. whatever is happening with him it's is, not just right a, a psych or like it's not and, just it's not a physical problem right it's not a physical malady yeah. he's not a schizophrenic not yeah. a schizophrenic excuse me what's the word I'm looking epileptic for? epileptic right he there's something genuinely reaching out to him but um but yeah no but it is creepy because you're watching him and he is talking unbroken in a very cool pattern right. like he's going through well, all he of is the a food musician, right? right he's a singer i love i love listening to him talking uh-huh. this um also kubrick really does him dirty because in the book he is wounded mm-hmm. but not killed there's also a weird kind of vision of blackness in this movie with him he goes, it's wild. He goes to his place in Florida, <laughs> it's and they're just wild. On both the head and the of his first dad. thing that you see <laughs> is a is a TV with a news report right. going on, and a naked black woman with a with huge, huge afro, afro and tits out, and right. I'm just like, there are tits in this movie. See, what this, is this movie happening? calls back a lot to me when I was a kid because. Um, uh, by the way, uh. I love it. I love his <laughs> right. style choices. I'm super on board. If I was an old black dude right. kicking it in Miami, well, my place of business right. was under 75 feet of snow. Yeah, tits. Tits out, everybody. <laughs> but 
There's a, you know, I hate that word. Oh, well, I hate that I said it so many times. I'm so when I was a kid, there was a place where uh, my mom, who I had a, you know, my family performed in churches and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would go and get um, musical uh, instruments, right? It was this big, dark building, and they would go get them on, on, you know, on loan and then rent to buy or whatever we had in the 70s. And the back of this store were a huge collection of velvet paintings oh, of yeah. naked black women with glitter on their nipples. Oh, they had like shiny, so shiny and beautiful. It was very funny because they were black velvet, right? So there's the painting. And they would is have there, earrings. Is there hair in the velvet? Yeah. Oh, nice. And they would I have earrings it. and nipples that were like made with sequins. So I'm all on board. How what do I, I get looking? some of this? <laughs> I Let's don't. just put that in. We don't need Van Gogh in our living room. This is from suckers. Right. Give me these I naked, beautiful naked ladies. I have never seen one since I was a kid, except for this movie. I don't know what happened to these. Um, but, uh, but anyhow, God, yeah. I When I was a kid, too, this film first came out, there was a lot of controversy about it. And there were... I remember seeing a news uh, segment on the nightly news about people complaining about the movie. And there was, I remember one woman... Was it people who'd actually seen it? There was one woman, they were getting people who came out of the theater, and this was something that used to happen. There's somewhere on YouTube footage of people coming out of The Exorcist. Lord. And just saying, oh God, I wish wish I'd never seen that. It's like, I'm going to go home and cry for an hour. I'm going to become a priest. That was somebody. (laughs) But... um, the uh, with the shining, the people coming out of the theater were either really angry at the film or really scared. Like there was one woman I remember complaining that she came to see a Jack Nicholson movie, and this is not an appropriate part for Mr. Nicholson. And I'm like, oh god, yeah, you didn't want to see him. <laughs> like, that was another. Okay, so once again, he is uh-huh. too old for the character yeah. as written, and and Stephen King tried to get them to go some uh, another way specifically because uh-huh. he seems already uh-huh. upon viewing his visage suspicious and oh what's the word I'm looking for like scary like he seems like a he bad dude from go from day one and, it's and either that's the, just who Jack Nicholson is. The unkempt hair or the unshaven face. There were elements it's of the him that were just... It's the hot smile. It's the... It's right. all of it. It's Jack Nicholson. He's not a fam... I'm sorry. Never in a million years mm-hmm. is he a family man. That's yeah. not... And again... Who he, he is. You're also having the, the disadvantage of seeing all of his older work where this was like this something is he another, capitalized this on. This is another problem. Right. Because I'm not the only... In 1980, uh-huh. he's not an unknown quantity. Well, his first choice, Kings, was, as he mentions in the Fangoria article, was Martin Sheen. That would be interesting. And he wanted I think to Martin go, Sheen could have been he was bananas the right good age. in this. Oh, yeah. yeah, he could have been, because he also is somebody who can just really key it up when he needs to. Yes. And but lose himself. can 100% be a likable right. or in lovable I could see Martin Sheen person. doing it. Right. Yeah, I could see him as an alcoholic who snapped and hurt his child. Right. I could see Jack Nicholson just waking up on a Tuesday morning sober as the day and breaking his, his right. kid's arm. Sorry, Jack. <laughs> you did this to your son. I'm sorry. <laughs> your choices have not been... <laughs> You know, you played the Joker for God's sakes. That's about <laughs> so. I mean, so I mean, that's you played the tough. devil. You know, like that's he, he straight up played the devil. So, uh, uh, yeah, that is 
fundamentally, I have just problems with the mm-hmm. characters in the in the film because I don't. I mean, I care about Danny because mm-hmm. he's a baby, right? But other than that, I I can't wait for you to freeze to death, Mister Nicholson, mm. if you're not going to f- explode. Well, you apparently about, you're not going to explode. You cared about the three other characters. Sadly, and this is going to sound really mean, I I wasn't as sympathetic towards Wendy because it felt like a lot of what she did was enabling. It does. It does feel like that. Enabling her husband and covering up for him. Where I'm just like, well, you are not protecting your child Mm -hmm. and yourself. So at some point, I'm going to run out of patience. Right. Also, why are you there? Well, why did you agree to it? Like, I, I don't. It doesn't feel like she has enough agency in her marriage. Mm. And granted, yes, that is how abusive relationships are. Right. But she stands up to him at one point and is like, you're a monster, don't ever come near us again. And I'm like, where was where, this? Where are you supposed to answer? Yeah, no, she just, she doesn't stand up for herself enough. And I don't, I just don't get enough spine from her to, mm. to yeah. and I don't want her hurt. Like, that's right. not what I'm saying. But I know I'm watching a movie. Mm-hmm. And so the Jack and Wendy characters, I think Dick uh, I actually care. is to me Dick and the kid are the most sympathetic characters. Absolutely, and Dick the fact is that, actually trying to protect the kid. I'm and like, the fact that Dick mom. is basically he gets there with the ride out, right. and then is unceremoniously killed. Now this is a man who is telepathic right. at the very least, and he is walking into this place like <laughs> anybody here. No, I'm sorry, there's no way. He tiptoes. He knows some shit is going down. Right. What are you doing? Right. That didn't occur to me until you mentioned it. It's like, if he's telepathic, then why does he walk into a guy with an axe? It's like, that, doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Because even if you can't fully read what's going mm-hmm. on with him, you got to be able to get some of the in the rage that's um, coming off of him. Well, also, he's worked in this hotel, so he knows. He also knows where the demonic room is. He also knows is. where everything is. Right. He kno- yes, he he's just, he walks in like such a rube. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You literally just came here to die. Yeah. And it's such a shame because up until then, we have no indication that this man is an imbecile. Right. <laughs> We, he seemed like a cool dude. He cares about this family. He's really trying to help. And then this movie just right. treats him like garbage. From the yeah. time that he parks that snow cat, he's a goner. And it's it's rude, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. I always liked Scamming Crothers. I, so seeing him just sort of get, you know... Hacked to pieces for no particular reason. There's like, no reason for well, it. Why did that happen? You are a man who has lived. You are a black man in America <laughs> who has lived this long. Right. You are not stupid. What? And that, that's are you another doing? interest. I like the fact that the phrase "white man's burden" um, makes me want to punch someone in the face. <laughs> <Okay>. Go ahead. <laughs> but I think that shows a little bit of what Kubrick was leaning into, which is I the notion so. that this is a man who has to be reminded. He doesn't want to use the N-word. Uh, it wasn't Lawrence. No, he says it. It's, uh, it's Delbert. The it's, the, Delbert. it's the ghost, yeah. Delbert says it to him, and then he's like, oh, he yeah. He says he's communicating with a N-word, right. and, that, and then Jack Nicholson says, an N-word? Right. And then he says it again. The other right. guy says it again, and then that's it. That's the, that the uses of those words. weirdly authentic to me. It did. Like, he's like... He says it hard right. R, but he says it in a way that it, you can tell it's not a comfortable word in right. his mouth. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but he's now he's being allowed into this sort of weird, whispery boys' club yeah. of misogynists and misanthropes. And, and, and just oh, okay. So, it, and again, so that way it does work, though. It does, way, and and does it's work. a real person. Like my dad was like mm. this. Ugh. He was a Sorry. man of low skill mm-hmm. uh, and uh, high thought of himself, mm-hmm. who believed that the world owed him because he was there. I don't, it's not, it's a sense of entitlement that I don't possess, so I don't understand it. A lot of things that I don't possess, I do understand. This is a thing I don't understand. Like, what makes you think that you deserve anything without putting any, but it's all I do so much for. Meanwhile, he hasn't done a lick of work for this entire hotel. All he's doing is writing. She's taking care of everything yeah. that needs to be taken care of. We see her making well, yeah, that's breakfast. Right. We never see him do anything. He doesn't do anything. He has to write. We see her making her making breakfast and then wheeling it across the entirety of this hotel. Right. Well, and then waking him up, it turns out it's 11.30 in the morning on right. a Monday, and she says, you should take me for a walk, and he says, I have to write. His, I'm sorry. His, um, you have to work. He has a scene, and, and again, it's for this character, whether we like him or not, it actually is a perfect character study it's, of that guy. Yes, it, it is. And so maybe guy. that's another problem that I have, is right. I'm just like, oh, I... I was I know raised that guy, by that guy. Because that when guy's he does say to the her fucking later, worst. Do you have any idea the sense of res- the responsibility that's been invested in me? Yeah. And what that's about a, that me? line's a howler because you're like, what What right. have you done? And, and it's in response to right. Danny is your baby. Your, right. ch- your six-year-old child is clearly sick mm-hmm. and we need to get him help. And he is like, but what about me? Right. So in that respect, which is his go-to for it. any response to anything. Right. But what about he captures me? that character perfectly? It, he Whether does. You can put up and with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other question. And I just want but, you to but freeze anyhow, to death. Other than that, the movie is beautiful to look at. <laughs> like I said, right. it's it's is, a good movie. But if you're in it for character, uh, don't. Well, yeah. If you want a sympathetic character, the, it's not the main couple. It's frankly. not. The other thing you mentioned that I would really like to to mm-hmm. the soundscape of this movie. This, it's so good. Is mostly the work of Christoph Penderecki, who is one of my favorite composers. But not it's even com- just the music. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about oh yes, the sound effects. The yes. sound, the the wheels of yeah. that trike on the floor, on the carpet, on the floor, on the carpet. Like that is so good. Yeah. That yeah no it's astounding and it looks beautiful uh, that carpet ooh <laughs> Penderecki though is a composer this is composed this is made edited from a lot of his religious music believe it or not I believe it I hundred percent very believe strange it. and disturbing you know who doesn't believe it right. Kubrick <laughs> not interested in your religion I don't think I don't no, no, no. know if that's well, true no, but well, it seems like it'd be he true. made a comment to Stephen King and when he called him initially about buying the property he said. Um, I think ghost stories are generally optimistic because they give the impression of life after death. And that's always optimistic. And Kubrick's, I mean, King's response was, well, what about hell? And according to King, Kubrick took a full beat and was like, well, I don't believe in hell. You know, so he was holding out. Which is that. ironic because I'm pretty sure this hotel 
is supposed to be hell like if it's, in your movie, sir. If it's not hell, it's the doorway to it. It's pretty bad. Um, but but um, Pendereki, his, uh, I actually have most of his recordings, and I play them while I'm writing to get in the mood. It's mm-hmm. really creepy. And some of the noises are kind of... He's the only composer I know who's included air raid sirens in his work to get that sort of shrill kind of... And that's played in this film. Kubrick always, and we saw this with 2001, has these really interesting music choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's definitely true. And, you know, the, the waltzing spaceships in 2001, it's like he connects things in his head yeah. in a way that's really amazing. And again, it's a genius, but uh, yeah, did but he do right by the material? I, sto- I uh, from a story per- uh-huh. perspective, it's not doing it for me. Mm-hmm. From a film perspective, right. it's beautiful and it sounds wonderful. But... Yeah, it's just... Also, fundamentally, I have to say this. Mm -hmm. In the book, he's attacking with a croquet mallet. Oh, here we go. (laughs) It's like, I understand, but... An axe... does all of the work. Mm -hmm. If someone's coming at you with an axe, it doesn't matter who it is. Right. That's fucking scary. If someone's coming with you a, with with at you with a croquet mallet, uh-huh. it has to be in the person for the for fear to come through. Because otherwise, uh-huh. what the fuck are you doing, dude? That's just a big. My understanding of what it was was that Kubrick was afraid that it might come across as funny. As funny, and that's a. Here's the thing: uh, you made her swing a baseball bat for 127 takes. Right. Make Jack be scary with a croquet mallet. I promise he mm-hmm. can. And I think it might be that he was nervous about attacking this kind of material because, as we've mentioned, horror this is was very his, specific. It is, and um, for him, this was his first sort of delving into that, uh-huh. and he wanted to. But that's funny. I think he was. It's funny that he was like each genre. He was like, "I'm going to do one, uh-huh. check it off, move on to the next right. one." I'm going to do science fiction. I'm going to do horror. I'm going to do a period piece. I'm going to. But do, just right. fundamentally, like. The axe is doing all mm. of the heavy lifting there. Yeah. And it's disappointing more than anything else. I do understand the fear mm-hmm. of looking ridiculous. Well, he'll look like a character out of Alice in Wonderland, you know, running around with a... That's fucking scary if you do well, it, right? <laughs> that's it, though. I think that he went for something that was just going to come across to anybody. He could break her wrist. Mm-hmm. With a croquet mallet, right. with one swing, mm-hmm. and that really puts you in and danger. It was, was it a croquet mallet, or was it a? Because I remember they kept the cro- the mallet for the remake, but it was for a game that was on a larger scale, so it was a much bigger croquet mallet. It was. It was one of those sort of, um, uh, like novelty uh-huh. things. Because the other thing that they kept is in the book, it's a topiary garden. Now, King mentioned that he, uh, when he was on the set for the film, he mm-hmm. said that Kubrick, to his credit, tried very hard to get it to work. Yeah. But the it, visual I effects think people in, said... I think in 1979, yeah, they the didn't have... The technology didn't it exist It would have looked ridiculous. And I think that the uh, maze is extraordinarily effective. Right. Um, and the way that they use it a couple mm-hmm. of times with the kid they, mirroring the opening shot with the kid and the mom right. doing the walk through it, and you're seeing it from an aerial view, and then they have the, the model... And you just see how big this thing yeah. is. And I think that the topiary, the uh, the living topiary, didn't work in the, the remake either. I, well, we'll get there. But we'll I mean, there. it's just like he. But I like trouble. that idea. That's a cool right. ass idea. But I, yeah, 
to you make went it the work is of trying difficult. to do full size. And apparently, mm-hmm. there are there's hours of footage of different attempts to try to make the topiary work. Is my understanding? But I think I think of all the things that he changed, the maze right. is probably worth his best contribution. Best. I think so because I think it is a scary thing to be mm-hmm. caught in a maze. You never know if you're going to run around this corner and he's going to be facing you right there. Um, and you know, he, you hear at the beginning and the, the caretaker is like, I wouldn't want to go in unless I knew I had an hour to make my way back out. Right. Like it's massive. There are probably miles of routes yeah. in within there. So and the walls are 13 feet tall. You mentioned, yes, so it's so not you like can't, you can climb yeah. over it. It's yeah. just going to, yeah. Um, so I actually, that's the piece that I mm-hmm. do. I was like, this is a good contribution. And, um, what's the word? Uh, compromise. Yeah. From, so that there is an outdoor piece and it's got a similar, um, like, feel. Like, visually, it works really well. Yes. Visually, that whole scene is the the snow encrusted hedge. Yeah. And the kid running through it It actually is really affecting. Yeah. You feel for him. And the, the thing that Kubrick did really well also is shooting from very low angles. He does. He sh- he's on right. the ground. Oh, a lot of steady cam in this too. Yeah, and it works. This is a guy really exploring this new technology, and taking advantage of it. So good on him. But yeah, I understand your complaints about the film. Ta-da! So what else did we want to say? Anything else? I'm trying to remember. I you know it's I had it. We saw Ready Player One, right? We did. And in that film, there's a reference to The Shining. That's right. The movie Shining. and But I don't remember what it was. Spielberg kind of whiffs it because he's too much into the rotting corpse in the hotel room and the other stuff. And Kubrick, I mean, Spielberg has been trying to be Kubrick for a very long time to the point where he did a film that Kubrick tried out and didn't succeed with, which was AI. He, in the end, Kubrick decided, I don't want to do this film. Oh, anymore. that's interesting. And then was responsible Kubrick's for... Kubrick's AI would have been interesting. I didn't hate that movie. He was responsible for editing, um, doing an edit on Eyes Wide Shut after Kubrick died, mm, which was a right. pity, which might explain why the movie doesn't make any damn sense. You know um, who thinks that movie's great? Who? France. It's, it, largely in the it, United States, it's thought did not work, but in France, it's hailed. It's, so. I, I think the movie works up until the end for it's me. It's not my jam. When... Uh, when somebody sort of explains it all away, I'm like, but wait, I was kind of... It, it felt a lot like Rosemary's Baby, these sort of mysterious things happening in corners of New York that you don't know about. Um, which, yeah, I can see that. I yeah. just, I don't need to watch a movie with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman in it. That's just well, me. I think that's the, relation, the movie that broke up the relationship, possibly. They, they didn't... <laughs> well, you're watching them make out, and you're like, these two people have literally zero chemistry. Uh-huh. They're married to each other in actual life. I think that Nicole Kidman also in you that You like movie, her and I No, but don't. she came across a lot more natural than he did. I think that's probably right. And Maybe. I don't it's know. It's weird how in that film, to Cruz's credit, who I'm not really overly fond of, um, he takes a lot on the chin. Kubrick really lays into every possible rumor about Tom Cruise. At one point, Nicole Kidman says an offhanded comment about the size of his penis. Another point, a bunch of uh, frat boys combine, knock him over, and start asking him if he's gay. Like, every one of those personal demons for Tom Cruise 
the tabloid demons get thrown up yeah. on the screen. Like he had, I don't know if he, because originally Kubrick wanted to go with um, another famous Hollywood couple, Alec Baldwin. Oh, and Kim Basinger. And Kim Basinger. When they were still together. When they were still together, and I don't think she could have pulled it off. It was, it's, you know. <laughs> I yeah, think if you could have I, mixed just, and matched, not, that would have worked. Better. Not my jam, and that's fine. Right. Um, mostly, there's a scene of like five minutes long, and it's one piano note. Ding, <laughs> the ding, orgy ding, thing, ding, yeah, over and over again. And that sound makes me very on edge, and I don't enjoy that's it. That's probably so. why he did it. Not my jam. I, yeah, but I will just stop right. watching a thing if it's making me that unhappy, so... Okay, bye. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Danny and Wendy get away. Jack freezes to death. Danny goes on to uh, appear in the 2013 book, Dr. Sleep. He's the main character. Uh, and the ghost of his father appears at the end. Spoiler alert. Uh, Wendy has died in 1999 of lung cancer, possibly due to the explosion right. of the Overlook Hotel. Didn't happen in this, but... What happens to Dick? Uh, he probably dies eventually, because he's, he's an old man. I just didn't know if he was mentioned. No, I don't believe he's mentioned. He, he, I mean, he's mentioned, but I, I don't know what mm-hmm. happens to him. Well, he was already supposed to be an elderly man to start with. Exactly. Yeah. He's, so. um... Well, let me see. Let me find out. Since now you've asked. And my fault. I do like Stagat Man Crothers very much. I also did not know his name was spelled C-R-O... <laughs> He's in a bunch of stuff. He's in The Shining. He's mentioned in It, an army cook and member of the African American or African American Army nightclub in Derry, Maine, called the Black Spot, burned down by the KKK. Rude. He's also notable notable for being one of the only sane adults able to see It in one of its varying forms. Uh, he appears in one of Tabitha King's novels. Oh, oh that's adorable. Apparently, they liked him. And in Doctor. Sleep, he is given uh, sub- substantial uh, backstory and now, information. My question is about King. Yes. Um, what his relationship is with black people. Because well, he lives in Maine, so probably few and far between. Well, I wonder, because I remember um, we have a mutual friend. We do. Who's a painter. Oh, yes, we do. And he had correspondence with Robert Parker, the author of the Spencer novels. Robert Parker's statement about why Hawk who's the really dynamic uh, character in the Spencer novels, who's like his right hand and sometimes not, um, is that he goes, I live in Boston. Black people and white people live very differently in Boston. When I was in the army, all my friends were black, and that was the most fun I ever had. And then I came out here, and white and black people stay separate, and I miss my black friends, so I made up a black friend on paper, which is really sad. Oh, yeah, it is. (laughs) But... um, I wonder if King, because he does have very sympathetic black characters, including the character in It, uh, who was completely robbed in the last movie for some reason. They just, they they, mm, didn't like that. Um, But I wonder that, that, you know, there's a lot of sympathy towards Dick here, it seems like, and he goes on to be a, a force to be reckoned with across the King universe, I guess. So... There's an article by mm-hmm. Scott Woods, uh, or an essay mm-hmm. uh, from 2015 called Stephen King's Magical ne- Negroes, mm-hmm. written for Union Station magazine. Um, he talks about how he was raised on Stephen King and he loved Stephen King, but then he realized 
if a black person shows up in a King novel, they stand a 50% chance of possessing a supernatural ability. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, a lot of his characters have supernatural abilities. Well, but also, you could say the same thing about white folks. Yet there? there is a 99% chance that whatever black character appears, be they magical or not, their presence will serve only to enhance, advance, save, or develop white characters. That's true. That's 100% true. And that's probably true of a lot of white authors mm-hmm. Uh, especially white authors who were born in 1947 in rural Maine mm-hmm. and lived there most of so their lives. So do you think it's another issue with not being able to connect with actual black people and and missing the... Or that not? is Because I, I believe that he has genuine affinity and love for yeah. aspects of black culture. Right. Um, the church, for music. instance. <laughs> there you he go, very the church. He famously said that, his, the, 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 the church he grew up into, which was a white church, said uh, compared to the black churches that he'd visited was like a soda that had been left out and the fizz had gone away, (laughs) which is a very funny description. Yeah, and he says, um, I don't need you to, this is uh, once again from Mm. the Scott Woods uh, article or essay. I don't need you to create realistic black characters. I need you to create a black character that doesn't make me hate myself or make people believe that's how black people are, Mm -hmm. which is unfair to put on a a writer. Right. There's certain, there's certainly, oh, no, 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 no. Here's the thing you have to be careful of. There's a Republican senator or representative named Steve King who Mm -hmm. is a white nationalist and a racist. So I'm getting Steve King's most controversial statements, but that's with a V, Mm -hmm. not with a PH. So, I mean, he does have (laughs) problems with black Mm -hmm. people. And when we get to the Green Mile, they'll Mm -hmm. become abundantly clear. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd like to see more. He's got a problem with women, too. He's a white dude. Am I making excuses? No. I'm saying he's a white man mm-hmm. who writes what he knows. There are a lot of English teachers and novelists as main characters right. who have struggled with addiction, who are dads. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's writing himself into a lot of his things. Now, the pro- a big problem with that is he's got a massive library mm-hmm. of work that he's written right. with thousands of characters and a vast and disproportionate number are white men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, that's an issue, certainly. But I don't, I don't think he's racist. I don't know what's in his heart. No, I don't. Think but I don't he's think he's no, racist. No. I, I, I th- but I do mm-hmm. think he's, his work is lacking. Well, there's we'll a lack that. of familiarity. Yeah. And, and there's really only one way to. But deal he's with a it. very rich man with mm-hmm. a lot of power. He could, get fucking familiar. Right. Mm, I don't know. It seems like such a strange thing, strange thing to ask somebody because. Like, the other, the the opposite sort of part of that argument mm-hmm. is a lot of, I've heard a lot of black artists specifically say mm-hmm. that they don't want white people to write black characters because A, they're probably going to do it wrong, mm-hmm. and B, it pushes out black artists right. from writing those characters. And I'm like, well... Stephen King's going to have Stephen King's audience regardless. Mm-hmm. He's not stealing your audience. But uh, I've heard that argument too. So I'm always like, well, if I was to write a fiction story and I'd want to put it, make it from the point of view of a black woman, mm-hmm. you know what I wouldn't do 
I wouldn't talk about how she looked at her black fingers <laughs> as she was This typing. is not a reference to Bones of Stephen King, by the way. It's not. This it's is a, a reference <laughs> to a story in a writer's workshop I was at. Oh, at my God. In Berkeley. <laughs> that I shared with Miss Amity. And I almost burned, literally lit on fire written with, matches. with a, Written by a woman who was about 21 or 22 and possibly weighed 120 pounds soaking wet. If that. And she was writing a story about a character who was... Fat. She was fat. fat. She probably wasn't. She probably weighed 180 right. pounds. She, she probably was fine. <laughs> but it would... It was literally, I looked down at my fat fingers on the moving across right. the keys. No, I'm sorry. As a fat woman, right. I'm telling you right now, that thought has never crossed my mind once. <laughs> How fat are my fingers on this keyboard? Oh, it's like every every time I move my body, I'd be mm-hmm. like, ugh, my fat arm, my <laughs> other fat arm. That is a lot of, of mental power then, going to something that is going to make you kill yourself. This like, series what? of workshops were so <sighs> funny because you had... Um, this young woman who was just, this other woman in that class who was just beautiful, I mean, she really was, who wrote stories about how everyone hated her because she was so beautiful. Oh, that's fun. And <laughs> Which was, wasn't, didn't one of them t- write about a bunch of people in an old folks' right, home and they were like home. 51 and or something? And they were 55, and there's a guy who's 60-something in the class who was a really talented <sighs> writer. And he turns and looks at me like, he's in a nursing home and he's 55 years old. <laughs> He had a really rough life. Also, he's rich because right. <laughs> I, I, it was just hysterical. There but was yeah, so that much, that yeah. that story about the heavy well, I, girl I and how everything that right. she did it revolved it around that was in her head. Yeah. Every move she made, she pondered her fatness, and I'm just <laughs> right. like, well, that's I exhausting. I I don't know. I don't know if writers should write that much outside of their experience because I like. What what is? It's always going to be through that lens. You're always going to have your lens right. on it, uh, and um, and you can, but you can grow and tint your own lenses. Well, but what's the the the, the, the fake paragraph written? And I can't remember the author who I'd like to credit about a man writing a woman's point of view is that she, you know, her firm, young breasts. Oh, well, that was a big, that was a thing on Twitter, too, where right. it was a, a man writes a woman, and right. it's all, yeah. She oh. breasted boobily down the stairs. Yes. It's yes. very funny. But, yeah. But also, found in a lot of actual oh, things yeah. that are published. Oh, yeah, you have no idea, especially if you're reading things. Ian Fleming, for instance, is a writer with better about these things. The people following after him, <laughs> less so, or we're less careful. And there's a lot of that kind of, of stuff. It's, yeah, but I don't know. I, I I'm not sure how you write a black character if you're not black. I, how do you just? I, that was a question I had once writing a black character. It's like how do you just not say he's black? How, well, how you, I mean, you do at right. some point if if you describe your characters. Or does a black character think of himself as black? Does he just like I yes, every minute of every day? That's right. all that he's thinking about. Right. So I can understand from the point of view of somebody who who's not familiar with it what it's like. But I do think that that criticism that she gave is not quite fair in it. But I didn't read the book. I I saw the two film versions, so oh, okay, it might be different. Wait. What criticism in it? Uh, that they further white interests when actually 
the black kid in it is actually saves the world, and he's the well in the book the repository of knowledge, and he's in the book and in the first in film the adaptation. Movie, nope, they give it to the fat kid. No, no, in the first film adaptation. Oh, in the first, yes, 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 in the he's television, very in much the, yes, still that sorts of yeah. In the in this uh, current iteration, they gave it to Ben, right? Which was really surprising that the adaptation done what in the eighties, which not eighties or nineties, I don't remember. Uh, Ninety, I think nineties, yeah. That that was more on point. Yeah, it's than, yeah. Mike gets real undercut in mm-hmm. the first. It I don't know what's going to happen in the, in second, the second one, one. Um, because the character that's supposed to be the repository mm-hmm. doesn't make it to adulthood. Spoiler alert! Spoiler right. alert! Spoiler alert! But I don't know if they're going to make that true in the movie, right? Or if they're going to change. That, that was the one disappointing thing about the movie is like, why did you rob him of being the bookish nerd? Right. How often do you see a black nerd? And his family was, like, had the history to, mm-hmm. like, it made right. sense. It just didn't make sense for this new kid. I mean, it it makes a little bit of sense for a new kid to want to know about no the place friends, that he's so in. He's yeah. just going to do this. But, right. but to steal it from the one black right. character is a little bit, it's rude. So, all right. Is that everything on the, on the everything. Shining? We're That's done it. talking about The Shining now. We're going to talk about the 97 version when we get to it right. sometime next year, I think. <laughs> next week, mm-hmm. we're watching Creep Show. Creep Show. And I am nervous. Why? Because I'm pretty sure this thing gave me nightmares when I was a child. Is this the one with the raft? No, I think it's Creep Show 2. Okay. Well, maybe now, I didn't then. <laughs> with, this is a perfect example of in this case, sublime to ridiculous. Okay. Because we've seen well, really, we've seen three fairly serious adaptations yes. of, and this last one was a damn masterpiece, right? It's a mm. masterpiece of cinema. Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that it is it, for people who love the book, but as a piece of film, it's amazing. As a piece of film, it's amazing if you and don't then, care about characters or story arc well, in your films. <laughs> Ha ha ha, we fight. <laughs> My toe hurts. Sorry, I just moved it for the first time. Anyhow, so. That's mean. That's not what I get. That's rude. So I think that going into this really goofball adaptation of Stephen King is going to no, be. Was Creepshow made for television? No, Creepshow was, was most okay. certainly not made for television. Okay. Although. There's a lot of television people in it. Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen, and a lot of people who started in television and later went on to bigger things. Um, Leslie Nielsen didn't start on television, did he? Yeah, he did. He, I know he started as He a... was the villain of the week on cop shows in the 70s, which is really funny. Oh, on television. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then started a, a career as a comedian. Ooh, George lately. Romero was the director? Right. Sweet. And George Romero here is not taking himself seriously at all. How but um, sorry, I'm excited. Adrian Barbo and Hal Holbrook and a bunch of other people. But yeah, seeing Ted Danson as a young man with so much hair. This is the first one mm-hmm. that Ed Harris is in. Ed Harris, he's in a lot of Stephen King adaptations, so he'll be back. This mm-hmm. is the first one. So this is uh, from 1982, and it's available on Prime. Yes, not Creepshow two, Creepshow, Creepshow one. one. Uh, from 1982, comedy, fantasy, horror. Yeah, there's a lot of different in that order, type, right? And and not at all serious. And they are based not on Stephen King books. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wonder if we should even do it. Yeah, we'll do it. They're based on the EC horror comic books of the 1950s, but Stephen King wrote the screenplay for this. Right. 
This is his first screenplay. That is last. And he's in the film. He's in a lot of the stuff. No, no, he, yeah, Starting but he has a whole, he's a starring character in his segment. What? Of really? I don't think I've seen this movie. Yeah, you haven't. Now that you're telling me all of this, I don't think I've seen it. I've seen the second one. What's really funny is that I saw, and I don't know who did it. I'm tempted to say it was a Marvel Comics thing, but there was a comic book adaptation of Creepshow, which is about a kid reading a comic book. And Not I, the EC horror comic books. No, of the, the 1950s. No, 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 no. This was an adaptation of the movie, but oh, it was done so, in the style of these, you know, splash pages in Hollywood. So and, this movie's based on comic books, right. and then there was a comic book based on the movie. Right. This movie is based that's on comic books. That's some bullshit. <laughs> and there's a segment of a kid trying to read a comic book, and that's where the stories are coming from. Oh, so it's based okay. on a comic book uh, with a kid reading that comic book. And then I read the comic book that was made. Oh, good grief! Yes, you I heard that. Oh, like as a like a tie-in, oh, tie-in like a right. gotcha. And they did a really. Did it good... come up with like four box tops or something? No, it was. I got it. I found a copy of it much later in life oh, when okay. I was working at home. Oh, right, you wouldn't have been allowed to watch this. No, and the uh, what I amused me the most was how carefully the artist who did the comic book imitated the style of those early EC comics. Interesting. Like Tales from the Crypt and things like that. Okay, Tales from the Crypt, is that's why it feels like Tales from the Crypt right. to me. Okay, good. I'm was, glad it's not coming right. out and of we'll nowhere. talk about it more because that's yes. also... So that's next week. So, um, now, now what is, did you have anything to recommend this week? Uh, before we lose track. I don't know, do you? You sound like you might. I didn't, I, um, I saw a movie with you that I did not expect to like. Ha ha, I tricked and you. it's not for everybody. Matter of fact, there are parts of it that weren't for me. Yes. But um, I knew it was coming and I couldn't save you and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what's going on? Oh, I didn't need to see that. We um, watched uh, Long Shots. Starring Charlize Theron and, and a lot Seth of funny Rogen. people. And somewhere in that movie is Seth Rogen. Um, anyhow, but if you don't it like Seth Rogen, you can spend most of your time just staring at Charlize Theron. We went very funny to that because this last okay so starting this coming weekend mm-hmm. and every weekend for the foreseeable future there are like three movies a, a week coming out that I want to see right. but this last weekend it was pretty light on shit I actually cared about so right. am I going to see Detective Pikachu? I am thank you for asking but <laughs> you aren't so I, we didn't do that so we're going to go see that mm-hmm. uh and, uh, but we watched Longshot, and I liked it. And she was very funny. I she will is... say, it was a little long. Romantic comedies need to tap out at 95 minutes, and this was a cool two, two hours. hours and five right. minutes. No, the cast of comedians, you would be able to remember them better than I would. Oh, yeah. It's June Diane Raphael. Paul Shear is in there. Um, oh, I've forgotten. His. Kurt Brownoller is in uh-huh. there. You know him from right. Kristen Shaw's Horse. Kristen Shaw's Horse. <laughs> Please don't copyright me. I really like that thing, and if you don't know what it is, you should Google it. Um, and I don't know other people, right? Mostly it's... Charlize. Bob Odenkirk plays a Trumpian like president. He's he's like Trump and Reagan mushed into one. I read that he was channeling Bush, like a guy who's just clueless. Uh, Bush Jr. Because I don't think w. Bush Senior yeah. was clueless, but I think Bush Jr. was kind of <laughs> yeah. Like, do I really have to be here for this? Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I thought it was enjoyable. Yeah, it was it an was enjoyable sweet. movie. It was funny. She really sells it. You forget how good she Seth Rogen doesn't laugh much. His laugh really I, It me. does bother me when I see a woman that attractive with such a schlubby man. 
because it is kind of fitting into that male fantasy that, mm-hmm. you know, all these beautiful women are there just for you. Just for you. It's true. But at no point does he think that she should be with him, right. which I appreciated. And I am like, he does deserve to be loved. He was, There was nothing wrong with him. He could have cleaned up that beard. Uh, anyhow. But I've seen him without the beard. He uh, looks better with the beard. He's a fair, <laughs> that's, that's so sad. Um, but that's, he's a, he's, she's actually, it, the whole film is very entertaining. And he does carry his weight. You laughed film. all the way through it. I laughed. Well, because there are so many funny people in this movie. Yeah, and are. so there are bits that you're not expecting that turn out to be really funny. And there's parts that are genuinely touching where she does really, like, very. it's very sweet at yeah. times. He doesn't understand why I like romantic comedies. I, I, it's a comfortable formula that makes me feel warm at the end. You watch Godzilla movie why movies. I like movies, yeah, where <laughs> great big dinosaurs step on buildings. That's and, fine. And just, uh, you got yours, and I got mine. I have my own formula. I like so. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to recommend Killing Eve. Oh, so how is that going? So good. Is she dead yet? No. Okay. <laughs> This is a little bit like hunting Bigfoot right. or finding Bigfoot. Well, no, you're not actually going to do that. Could you stop having seasons of the show where well, you're not doing that? Eve is not dead. As Well, okay, I'm three episodes behind, and mm-hmm. as of then, Eve is not dead. My sense is that Sandra O's character is not going to die in this film or in the show. But it is beautiful to look at. It's super fun. Sandra Oh, as a leading lady, is the best. And the I recently saw her on a Time Magazine article, cover mm-hmm. article, uh, about influential people. So I suppose... Nice. Yeah. She won an uh, uh, Golden Globe? Emmy? Mm. Emmy, I think. Uh, I love the story that mm-hmm. she had gotten the script to read from her agent. And she got to like 15 pages in. And she calls her agent. And she's like, where... what?" where am I? What mm-hmm. piece am I reading for? And they were like, Eve, <laughs> like the main character, because she didn't even fathom mm-hmm. that she would be asked to read for the main title character of the right. show. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Because, of course, that would go to a white woman. Bullshit. Well, <laughs> her name is Eve Palastri, so I do understand. That's well, that's her thing. husband's last name. She's married right. to a Polish man. That is correct. The Korean Poles, which is... <laughs> Yes, of the Korean poem. <laughs> right. uh, so I, but I really like it. It's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's very like Villanelle is a serial killer mm-hmm. and kills men and women in very interesting but she's doing, and horrific she's ways. She's not a serial killer in that she's she's an assassin. Killer. She, you're right. She's a professional. This she is she would be a serial killer if she wasn't getting paid. But fortunately. <laughs> She found a way to put her skills Which, to profitable use. Like we all should, I That's think. Right. We should find a way to put she our best She's a role talents. model. Right. <laughs> uh, she's a really interesting character. Mm-hmm. Also, there's really interesting queerness throughout the show. Because mm-hmm. these two women are kind of in love with each other. It's surprising that she feels any love for anything at all. Because the mm-hmm. episodes I've seen, she's pretty much mm-hmm. an emotional void. She's... Still, she stunted as a child, I think, mm-hmm. is a big part of the problem. But anyways, the show's very good. It's on BBC America, right I before so, Discovery yeah. of Witches. Also very good. I like that, too. But, yeah, Killing Eve, so, it's beautiful. So, uh, Witches is a Discovery? I don't think so. I haven't read the book, so I don't know why it's called well, no, that. I mean, because, you know, whales are a pod. Coven. And... A group of witches is a coven. Yeah, so always a has been, always will be. Like, what do you call otters? Is it like a whisker? A whisker of otters? What do you? 
Is it a pod? Well, That's what whales are. Pod, but like it well, uh, a bristly, bristly mustache of otters. Yes, a mustache of otters. <laughs> An otter's den is called a holt or a couch. The collective nouns for otters are bevy, family, lodge, or romp. A romp of otters. That has to be my favorite. Actually, my favorite still is a murder of crows. Or when they're in water because they, mm-hmm. they like, um, uh-huh. what's that monkey game? Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I know what you're Bar- talking about. They, like, barrel of monkeys themselves mm-hmm. with the, uh, against each other when they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. And so they're a raft. A raft of otters. Mm-hmm. I think Rob is the best. <laughs> I love collective nouns. Right. want to do a whole show about collective nouns. It was the other one I liked, too, The uh, Passion of Italians. That was pretty good. I like made-up ones, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> All right. I think that's everything. Mm-hmm. So we thank you for listening once thank again. You. Thank Creep you. Show. I'm, I'm thanking you now. Creep Show next week. Uh, watch along with us. You can find us online. We have a Facebook group. Facebook page, rather. Well, we have both. Right. Mm-hmm. Go to the page. And you can email us with questions or comments or concerns or tell us we're wrong. Tell me I'm wrong about Stanley Cooper. Go ahead. I, it's not like I haven't heard it before from this one over here. <laughs> Ooh, and this one. <laughs> you told me it was what I deserved for my toe. <laughs> and that, oh, you can reach us at latecomerspod at gmail.com or on Twitter at latecomerspod. And we'll be back again next week. And we rem- we thank you very much. I remind you, take your medicine. And we, we say remember. <laughs> Better, Better late, late than, than never. never. Don't roll your eyes at my medicine. <laughs> Don't do that. Please.